Hey everyone, welcome to Embers in the Dark, a podcast that seeks to open up scripture as God's revealed word and um, seek truth, understand truth as he's revealed it, and then apply it to our lives. We'll have sermons and conversations and and a few other different things that just seek to open up and expound on God's word, uh, and again, just to, to bring it into application into our lives. Enjoy. Judges 21-25. Well, I'll say it. I won't read it. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone does what was right in their own eyes. That is Judges 17-6, but 21-25. And again, it's a commentary of the time of the judges. And we started last week with that, and we'll continue on from last week and finish. Once again, we are concerned this week with our life as the body of Christ. We're not so much concerned with the individual. We're not geared towards the individual. Um, Though we're all individually responsible, what we are concerned with today is who we are as God's people and how we are to function as a group of God's people, how we are to function as a group of believers. First Samuel 6, if I didn't say that. 4, actually, we'll start in 4. The question we could ask is, what is our philosophy of ministry? Or, what is our methodology in this church? What is the center or the driving force of who we are and what we do? It is a very important question to ask because if our source is polluted, it will pollute everything else. If the source of a stream is polluted, the stream stream is going to be polluted. If we begin with the wrong source, it doesn't matter what we do, it will be wrong. And again, we are all affected by the temperature of the times. And again, I hope to show you the colors that are tinting our lenses, often without us even noticing it. And again, for that, we'll look to God's word. And again, we'll follow a thread that runs from Deuteronomy through Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Today, we'll continue where we left off last week and go through some passages in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and then we'll end up in the book of Chronicles. Let me just quickly uh, begin with a summary, a brief summary of last week. From Deuteronomy 12 through Joshua and into Judges, God's people have fallen into heavy idolatry. They were on the edge of the promised land. They entered into the promised land under Joshua's leadership. But after Joshua and the following generation died, they abandoned the Lord and began to worship the false gods that they were told to destroy. They've done exactly what they were commanded not to do in Deuteronomy 12. We won't go back there, but if you were here last week, you'll remember. They were told not to do what was right in their own eyes, but they did. They were told to hold fast to God's word as the standard of truth, but they did not. And this was the overall picture of Israel as a nation. As we saw in Judges, as we just read, there was no king and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. Last week we finished with how they got there. A slow descent caused by 
forgetting God and his word and choosing to do their own thing instead of God's thing, choosing their own way instead of God's way. Remember, it didn't happen overnight. It was cultural pressures that caused small but significant compromises. And as these compromises built up over time, the people grew further and further away from the Lord and closer and closer to the nations that surrounded them. If you remember, we called it historical drift. Generational drift is another word. Today, we'll take it a bit further and see how deep the rabbit hole goes. It is not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. To set the stage, we'll go to 1 Samuel again, chapters 4 through 7. We won't read them. We'll just look at them to get some background to the issues that we are going to unpack in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. So turn with me to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapters 4 through 7. Again, we won't read it, um, but I'll just point out some verses. So in 1 Samuel, we're still in the period of the judges. Saul is not yet king. He's made king in chapter 9. Israel requests a king so they can be like the nations that surround them, which is a whole other issue that we don't have time to go over. But Israel requests a king in chapter 8. They get Saul in chapter 9. So we're still in the period of the judges. Again, I'll just point out some key points as we go. So follow along. I'll give you the chapters and the verses. So in chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, Israel is in a battle with the Philistines. They're in Ebenezer. They're losing badly. They lost 4,000 soldiers in one day. We see this in verse 2. And so what they do is they call for the Ark of the Covenant to come. The Ark of the Covenant is about 40, 40 kilometers away, back behind them in Shiloh. Uh, and so they call for the Ark of the Covenant to come. Now this isn't an important point, but a good question to ask here is why wasn't the Ark already with them? Why did they have to call for it for victory? So Israel rubs their lamp like a genie and calls for the Ark of the Covenant to come from Shiloh to Ebenezer. And then Israel thinks everything's going to turn out okay now that the Ark is there. That's verse 4. God will give them victory because they have the Ark where he said he would dwell on the mercy seat. Israel's pumped. They're excited. They're going to win. The Philistines are terrified. But they go into battle again, verses 5 to 9, and Israel loses horribly. They lose badly. It's not that they lose and go home to lick their wounds to fight another day. They're slaughtered. Verse 11. They are slaughtered to the tune of 30,000 soldiers dead. 30,000. The Philistines capture the ark, verse 11, and take it into their own land. Skip over a chunk, verses 12 to 22. We'll skip over that. Go to chapter 5. Verse 1 to chapter 6, verse 6. The Philistines bring the ark first to Ashdod, where they set it up in Dagon's temple. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Dagon, he's the fish god, half man, half fish, almost like a mermaid, a human upper torso, and, and fish, I was going to say legs, but fish bottom, um, almost like, kind of like a mermaid. So anyways, they've got this temple for Dagon, and they set the ark up in Dagon's temple, beside Dagon, in a sense, being subservient to Dagon. So the Ark of the Covenant is subservient to the Philistine god of Dagon. 
The next day, they find the statue's fallen over, verse 3. They set it back up, but the day after that, they find that not only has it fallen over, its head and hands were removed. And not only that, the people were afflicted with tumors, verse 6. That was enough for them in Ashdod, so they sent the ark to Gath. If you're familiar with Gath, Gath, that's where Goliath will come from. They send the ark to Gath to get away from it. But tumors afflicted the people in Gath as well, and so they sent it on to Ekron. Obviously, the people in Ekron don't want it. They know what's going on. They say, get that out of here. So they get their diviners and their priests together, verse 11, to figure out what to do. And they realize the only thing they can do is send it back. Now, if you're paying attention there, what it says is that they're smarter than Egypt and Pharaoh, who, no matter what happened, wouldn't let Israel go until the 10th plague. So it says they're smarter than Egypt, they're smarter than Pharaoh, and they send the ark back. And this is where details matter, where the student of scripture will notice certain things. So I'll read 1 Samuel chapter 6, verses 7 to 16. So follow along with me as we read that. 1 Samuel 6, 7 to 16. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in it a box at its side, the figures of gold, which are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And they put uh, five mice and five tumors, golden mice, golden tumors in the box as a guilt offering. That's what that is. Send it off and let it go, go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. It is the Lord who has done this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not the Lord's hand that has struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. So what we have here is the Philistines basically saying, if these afflictions that we're facing are indeed from God, let us put it to the test. To get the ark back to Israel, we'll make a new cart, one that has not been tested for weight or function. And to pull it, we'll take two milk cows who have never had the yoke on them. We'll take two milk cows instead of oxen. And not only that, but we'll get milk cows that have calves and we'll take the calves away and put them in the back so that they are lowing after them. That's what they want to go back to their calves, but we're not going to let them. 
We'll set them up to the cart, put their calves back there. But not only that, we'll send it down the road without a driver, without anyone guiding it. And if it gets to Beth Shemesh, 20 kilometers to the east, we will know that God has done this and that it is not just coincidence. Well, as we know, the five lords of the Philistines followed it. They didn't tell it where to go. They followed it and turned around and went home when it got there. We didn't read it, but after an eventful day in Beth Shemesh, the ark ends up in Kiriath-Jerim, Kiriath-Jerim, where it stays for some 20 years. That's chapter 7, verse 2. So what we have here is a brief outline of the situation and circumstances that have brought the Ark of the Covenant into Kiriath-Jerim, where it stays for 20 years. Now, there's a lot that happens in those 20 years, and we're not going to go over it, but just for context, I'll just add a few important details. At this point, Samuel comes onto the scene as judge and prophet, and then not long after that, chapter 9, Saul is made Israel's king. Saul is king for a while, a lot of events happen, but is replaced by David. So turn with me to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6, where David is king. So Samuel's dead, Saul is dead, David is in his first year as king of all Israel. And the Ark of the Covenant is still in Kiriath-Jerim where it has sat for 20 years. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1-11. to 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. If you, if you were paying attention, that number will sound familiar. 30,000 died uh, the one day, and now David's called 31,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio went before the ark. Meaning Ahio was in the front leading the, leading the ark and Uzzah was at the side of, of the cart. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of the Lord. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David is king. And David desires the ark, which represents God's presence. God dwells there, enthroned on the cherubim, on the mercy seat, on the seat of atonement. And David desires that the ark is with him in Jerusalem. It's interesting that Saul never once sought the ark. 
to bring back to Jerusalem. And in David's first year, he does. So he gets some folks together to go and get it from Kiriath-Jerim. He gets a new cart, gets some oxen, and has Uzzah and his brother Ahio lead it down the road. The ark was actually at their house, at their dad's house, Abinadab, who was a Levite. And so Uzzah and Ahio, the sons, lead it down the road, one in front with the oxen and one at the back with the cart. And again, the people are pumped. They're excited. The Philistines were scared and the Israelites are excited. They're singing and dancing and celebrating with a clamor of music. And then the oxen stumble and shake the cart. And to keep the ark steady, Uzzah reaches out to grab hold of it. And is instantly killed by the Lord. So angry and afraid, David goes back to Jerusalem without the ark. We see in verse 12, we didn't read it, but in verse 12 we see that the ark stayed there for three months. And that David came back for it. But what happened in those three months? Before I answer this, turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25. Uh, Exodus is the second book, if you need a hand. Exodus 25, verses 10 to 16. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. Do you see the issue? Right here in Exodus, clearer than clear, the instructions for carrying the ark of the covenant. The Philistines, in their ignorance without the law, had no idea how to transport the ark. They did what they thought was best according to their own wisdom. And God honored it. But David comes along with his Israelite crew and they do almost exactly the same thing that the Philistines do. And it cost Uzzah his life. And so the ark sat there for three months while David, the king, went home to sort it out, angry and afraid. Again, what happened in those three months? Well, turn with me now to First Chronicles, chapter 15. First Chronicles 15. I'll read verses 1 to 3 and then 11 to 15. So First Chronicles chapter 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may 
carry the ark of God, for the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. And David assembled all Israel at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Verses 11 to 15. Then David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar, and the Levites Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek him according to the rule, or according to his commands, according to his word, according to his law. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to his word. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So what happened in those three months? David goes home angry afraid and he opened up the word of God he went back and started where he should have started with God and his word instead of himself and his people and their own wisdom he went home and sought the Lord he opened up God's law and read Exodus and saw that no one but the Levites may carry the ark he saw that they must carry it by poles of acacia wood fitted into the rings, and that the poles of acacia wood were never to leave those rings, and they were to lift it up on their shoulders. David went home and opened up the word of God and repented. He turned from self and back to God. He did it God's way instead of his own. And the result is that he brought the ark home to Jerusalem and danced before the Lord with all his might. Let me summarize. From Deuteronomy 12, through Joshua, into Judges, continuing in the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, God's people have fallen into idolatry. They've been taken into the promised land where they were given God's word as their foundation. They were given God's commands as their source of right and wrong, as their source of truth. They have sat under the leadership of the judges and have had some good moments of victory, but have continued to slowly slip into idolatry, forsaking God and forsaking his word. They didn't like the system of judges that set up, so they request a king in order to be like the nations that surround them. They get their king, Saul. He's a, he's a fool, makes a lot of mistakes, has a lot of times where he repents falsely and starts to do things Again, apart from God's word. Now David is king, and the first thing he wants to do is bring the ark from Kiriath-Jerim back to Jerusalem. The way that it gets to Kiriath-Jerim is through the Philistines putting it on a cart and pulling it by cows. And so David does the same thing. He brings it back, tries to bring it back to Jerusalem by copying what the Philistines did on a cart pulled by animals. David tries to do God's work in the world's way. 
Uzzah's killed when he touches the ark as, it, as the oxen stumble. And David is angry and goes home and reads the Torah, reads God's law, the first five books of the Bible. Remedies the error, the error and then brings the ark back. That's a summary. Why is this such a big deal? Why am I getting all uppity because of this seemingly unimportant story about the way in which the ark was to be carried? I'm uppity because this isn't just a simple mistake. And Uzzah's death is not just a separate unfortunate accident. This incident and Uzzah's death points to a very major issue. We can ask, why does Uzzah die? Because he touched the ark when he wasn't allowed to? Yeah. But also, no. We can also ask the question, would Uzzah have died if the ark was carried properly? No, he wouldn't have. And so, quite poignantly, Uzzah died because God's people failed to follow God's word. Importantly, because David, as their leader, led them there, and their king failed to follow God's word. I would surmise that David is angry and afraid because he knows that he failed. And that failure cost Uzzah his life. It cost Ahio a brother. It cost Abinadab a son. And the king bears that burden. The leader bears that burden. Am I being too dramatic? I don't think so. If they had carried the ark properly, as instructed in God's word, which they had, which actually sat in the ark, it's not like they didn't have it with them, it was in the ark. If they had carried the ark properly, as instructed in God's word, Levites with poles through the rings, there would have been no cart, and there would have been no oxen, there would have been no stumbling, and interestingly, there would be no Uzzah reaching out to stabilize the ark. And so why is this such a big deal? Why am I uppity? I like that word. It is a big deal because Uzzah's death represents the failure of God's people to follow God's word. It is a picture of doing what we think is best instead of what God has said of doing what is right in our own eyes instead of what God has given us in his word. And more dramatically, it is a picture of doing what the world thinks is right instead of what God has said in his word. It is a big deal because it shows us that when we do this, choosing our own words, choosing our own wisdom over God's, we are putting ourselves in God's place. It shows us that we think we are the authority rather than God being the authority. It is a big deal because when we choose to do things our way instead of God's way, it is sin. Sin. It's not just a mistake. It's not just a small error. It's sin. Doing what is right in our own eyes is never just a simple, innocent mistake because it is the basis of sin. Independence from God is the basis of sin. It is saying no to God and yes to self. Saying no to God's word and yes to our own. 
This is what we see in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve and the temptation. Has God really said this? Do you really have to follow God's word exactly as it says or can you kind of just go off and use your own wisdom? And again, we come back to the main point. It is that there is no king in Israel and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. In our culture, in this day, in this age, in which we live and move and have our being, who is the standard? In an autonomous culture, who is the standard? In a culture where there is no longer objective truth, but all truth is subjective, we see this with marriage and gender, who has the authority? Who is the standard? We are the standard. Who is the authority? We are the authority. We sit on the throne of our own lives. Christ may be our Savior, but in so many circumstances, He's not our Lord. And just like the Israelites, Christ is treated more like a genie that we call upon when we need Him. Like Israel, we like to do our own thing in our own strength until we can't. And then we've got to rub the lamp and call for the genie. And much in the same way that Israel has done, the church continues to fall into the sin of trying to do God's work in their own ways, according to their own wisdom. And this is why I get uppity. And now that we have seen the seriousness, how do we apply this? I have two points of application. How do we take this truth and bring it to bear, the seriousness of this, how do we bring it to bear on the corporate life of the body of Christ? First point of application. Just because we think it is right does not make it right. Just because the church thinks it is right or votes on it to be right does not make it right. The Philistines, in their ignorance, without the law, had no idea how to transport the ark. They had no clue what they were doing. They did what they thought was best according to their own wisdom, according to their own diviners, their own priests, their own prophets. They did what they thought was best. And it was fine. God, in a sense, honored it. God brought the ark back to Beth Shemesh. The unbelieving world did something in their, in their ignorance and God allowed it for the sake of his name. But that's not good enough when it comes to the people of God who have the testimony, who have the commands, who have God's self-disclosure. When God's people who have the information given to them on what to do ignore that information and do almost exactly what the world does in this case, God does not allow it. He does not honor it. And as we see with, with David and Uzzah, they were actually punished for their disobedience. Israel did what the Philistines did, and they were punished for it. Just because we think it is right doesn't make it right. Just because something is done in ignorance and works does not make it right. Again, just because the world does something and God uses it does not mean his people can do it and expect the same result. 
Claiming ignorance is not an option for the people of God. Especially when God has given us specific instructions about something in his word. When we, when we begin to look at the church of Jesus Christ, its forms and its functions, the who, the what, the when, where, why, and the how of it all, what is our starting point? Is it our own wisdom, our own experience, our own traditions, and our own histories? Or is the starting point God's word? Is the church being carried along on a man-made cart pulled by oxen? Or is it being carried according to God's word? In other words, is the church a dead machine running to our own specifications or is it a healthy organism subservient to God and his word? The church is not ours. It does not belong to us. As much as we like to think that we have a right to it, we do not. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It is from him and to him and for him is it this truth that drives us, that is our center, or is it our own preferences? Second point. If what we are doing is wrong, no amount of prayer, no amount of music, no amount of singing, no amount of praise, and no amount of labor will make it right. It does not matter how fervent we are about something. If it is wrong, even the best intentions, the most fervent prayers will not make it right. Look at David and all the house of Israel that are surrounding the ark. The ark's carried on a cart, pulled by oxen, and they are celebrating, singing, playing music, whooping up a good time. There's a massive commotion happening. If we saw this going down the street, it'd be like this massive parade that we... It's just a wonderful time. All the participants are having a great time. Nobody's concerned about anything. It's a wonderful sight. They're praising and worshiping God because they have the ark and they're bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. They are praising and worshiping God, singing, dancing. They're joyful. They are exuberant. It looks and sounds wonderful, but they are in sin because they are doing what is right in their own eyes. Listen to what God says in Amos chapter 5, verses 21 to 24. The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Instead, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Uzzah, a Levite trained in the law, thinks he's doing something good by trying to steady the ark, but he's wrong. David, the leader of the nation, thinks he's doing something good by bringing the ark back with a cart and an oxen, but he's wrong. In New Testament, Language. This is Peter thinking he's doing good by telling Jesus what needs to happen with his life and his death. 
saying, Far be it from you, Lord, that this should happen. And Jesus calls him Satan. And Peter was wrong. If we are wrong, no amount of prayer, no amount of labor, no amount of praise and singing can make it right. Let me conclude. It does not matter where you drink at a poisonous fountain. If the source is polluted, the entire fountain is going to be polluted. If the methodologies and the philosophies that are driving a church are wrong, the results won't be right, even if we think they're right. If the methodologies and the philosophies that are driving a church are based on what we think is right, instead of what God tells us is right, the results won't be right, even if they look good to our eyes. The point is that it does not matter what we try to do. If it starts with us as the source, instead of God and his word, it won't be right. No matter how much we care, or pray, or sing, or labor, if what we are doing is not right according to God's word, the empty strength of man cannot make it right. You can put a silk shirt on a leper. He's still a leper. You can sweep the mess under the rug and it doesn't make the mess go away. It just hides it. You can take medicine to get rid of the symptoms, but it doesn't actually cure the disease. It does not matter how good or right something looks on the surface. If the core is rotten, the rest will be rotten. And if you look hard enough, you'll find that symptoms have been covered over by silk shirts. You'll find us trying to hide our leprosy. If you look hard enough, you'll find that dirt has been swept under the rug. And if you look hard enough, you'll find that sin has been ignored. If you look hard enough, what you'll find is man at the center instead of God. You'll find man's word instead of God's word. What then is the cure to the disease? It's the same word, always. Repentance. Repenting from us as the source turning back to God as the source. Repenting from doing things our way, turning back to doing them God's way. And I want to be general on purpose because there's, there's so much that is underlying. There's so many things on the surface that are affected by the core. Leadership, our programs, how we view each other, church discipline, all of these things are affected by our methodology and our philosophy of ministry. We need to be asking, what does God's word say about this? And not be afraid of the cost it pays to follow that word. We need to be asking, what does God's word say about this? Not, what have we done in the past? Not, what are other churches doing? Not, what do we think will work? 
those all start with us. Those all start with our wisdom. And that type of thinking needs to be crucified. Instead of doing things our way, we need to open up God's word and do things his way. If you continue on past Chronicles, you get to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve. In Jeremiah, God says that because you continue to do things your way, I am going to ruin the works of your hands. And as God's people, if we do not repent and stop doing things by our own way, God will come and ruin the works of our hands. And the only answer is always repentance. As individuals and as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As painful as it is to read it, as painful as it is to hear the truth, as much tears as it brings to our eyes. We love your law and we love your word because it is truth. Lord, we ask that you help us Put steel in our spine. Lord, help us to hold fast to your word regardless of the cost. In whatever circumstances we find ourselves in as individuals and as a group of your people, help us to hold fast to your word instead of our own. Bring your truth to bear on our lives. And help us to forget ourselves. And to seek you and you alone. Lord, help us. We love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the time that we've been able to spend in it. Just care for us as we go. Care for your people here in Mydale. Care for your people in the district here. Draw them in closer to Christ and help them to walk according to your statutes. Grant them courage. Grant them bravery in a dark world. Grant them a voice in so many places where the gospel is not preached. Grant them a voice where false gospels are preached. Help us, Lord. We petition you as, our, as your children, knowing that as our loving Father, we will not go unheeded, all because of the blood of your Son. In his precious name we pray. And for your glory and your glory alone. Amen.
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Embers in the Dark. Enjoy your week.